My guest on Fistful of Chords this week is squeeze drummer Simon Hansen. Simon has been in the music business since the mid-80s, but it was joining Death in Vegas in the late 90s that really saw his career take off. He's been in Squeeze since 2007. Hello, Jim. Hello, Simon. How are you doing? I'm so happy. It's great. I'm, I'm really, really good. How, how was lockdown? It was, it's been the absolute weirdest time, but it's not negative. Um, I, first of all, musicians are used to having time off, so it's not the weird thing. And um, I, I haven't, you know, I, I'm worried about lots of things, but the people in a much deeper, like, problem because of it than me. So the fact that I can't play the drums in public places, whilst it's horrible and it's, uh, it's not the worst, is it? <laughs> I suppose. And um, what have you been? Um, have you been in contact with the rest of the band much? Yes, I've spoken to Glenn a few times, um, and uh, spoke to Chris. It's not intense, but it's lovely. It's just a catch up. But it must have meant you cancelled quite a few plans. Do you know I've I blotted it out because uh, there was a, there was about a week where my phone kept saying you should be at the Hollywood Bowl tonight, and I'm going no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm just at the. Uh, Toilet bowl, that's funny. Um, so I managed, after I've been, been a bit of a tech weirdo, I managed to switch that off so my calendar wasn't reminding me where I was supposed to be. Vegas! No! Yeah, it's like but, it's been uh, on yeah. bullseye, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Come and have a look at what you could have watched. Yeah, something. yeah, it was the old uh, speedboat thing, yeah. Oh my gosh, bullseye. I used to work with him. Well, Jim Bowie. I did a few gigs because he because he was a stand-up yeah. comedian, you know, back back in the early early days, yeah. And he wasn't it wasn't my favourite stand-up comedian, but he, yes, he, I think he's because he was quite a big name, wasn't he? He was living off the fact that he was such a big name, and his uh, his material didn't have to be quite as tight as probably other comedians. <laughs> is he dead? We're not we're not he slandering is. him. He, on... no, he is ah, dead. he's fine there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We say what we like. Right, you I'll... won't be grumbling when your washing's tumbling. <laughs> In this lovely double truck. Anyway, right, do you want to start the interview then? I will start off. So I'll start on a serious note. There's something about you. I didn't know this. I've known you for 16 years through writing the Squeeze book. And I didn't know that when you were 21, your father and your sister died in a plane crash. Which is they actually, did. I was, I was really shocked to read that. Um, how did that affect you? I think I was a bit younger, actually. I don't know whether Wikipedia is right on that, if that's where that came from. I think I was a bit younger. Um, yes, it was, it was quite... It was distressing and, uh, and sad at the time, but it, it did two good things. Always try and find the positive. Um, I was supposed to go with my dad that day. It was in a, it was in a small aeroplane, uh, Cessna 172. And I think he rang me up and said, do you want to go to Paris? And I went, nah. For some reason, I didn't go because I would normally have gone. Yeah, I'll come. You know, day trip to make this makes me sound like I was really posh. But we, we had a little aeroplane because he was mad aeroplane enthusiast, and we had a. Uh, it wasn't his aeroplane actually; it was somebody else's that he borrowed. And um, so, so I said no. I don't know why. I can't remember the reason, but I didn't go. And after you know, with all the sadness and everything, there was a good long period of time where I thought, well, I, I could do whatever I like. I, I'm immortal. That's that's wearing off now as I'm <laughs> hurtling towards being sixty. It's like, well, maybe I'm not as immortal as I thought. But th there was a period of time, and I think 
taking a positive out of a negative where I went, well, I'll, yeah, I'll go do whatever I want. Part, and part of that, I think music came, you know, I can go do it if I want. So how did you all, Still to, I mean, how big was your family? How, you know, it was, there were four of us, as my, my parents and my sister. So there was just me and my mum left. And um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was tough, very tough for her. We had a very... She, she, she passed away last year, um, and she was eight, mid-80s, and, um, which is all very sad. But she had an amazing life, so it was all, it was all good. And I, lo- I lost touch with her. Well, uh, immediately when it happened, I went, sort of moved back home and tried to do what I thought was the thing. But it was a very... It was a tough time of sort of a teenager, because I was a teenager, dealing with my grief and hers... You know, and, and the fact that we were the only two left out of it all. Um, so I, we clashed a bit, and then I sort of emotionally moved away. But then I went back, and we, we had become, you know, the absolute best of friends in the, in the last, I don't know, 20 years. So it was good. But it's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? Grief, grief is, yeah, grief is strange. that You don't realise how it's affecting you, I suppose. I'm not an expert on it, but um, yeah. And how, how was music much of a way of coping with with it in any way? I don't. I don't think music directly. I think I made myself very busy. To, if I can remember that far back, um, but I, I, you know, I had an obsession with drumming from being nine years old, uh, and. Uh, I think that was that was that was there prior. It was nothing to do with that accident. The accident gave me a bit of confidence that I could do anything. But before that, I had become absolutely obsessed. Why? What was so interesting about the drums? I, I think it, I don't know. I, I, I was started on trumpet, um, and I was so bad that my trumpet teacher, Peter Clark, said. Uh, he was great. He said, you know, do you never, I know you've got a trumpet and everything, but you're never going to be able to play it. Have you thought about the drums? And um, my parents, I was about probably 13 or 14, sent me on a, a residential weekend in Lincolnshire to uh, play with an orchestra because um, the school had said it. And I went and uh, my trumpet teacher said, why don't you go as a drummer? And I remember learning drums that weekend. And, and there was a concert on the uh, Sunday. And uh, the challenge was, you need to play... It was a song called March Militaire, which is a very uh, mili- military thing. And, and they had, you had to, it started with a drum roll. And I could just do it. I've no idea why. After, you know, battling... Me playing the trumpet was like me standing up in a canoe. <laughs> you know, I just, I just couldn't do it. But I wanted to, but it was just not, not going to be there. Next time I see you, bring a trumpet. It'll be the fun- <laughs> it'll be the funniest thing <laughs> you've ever seen. A, a drumming sort of just sort of seemed to be there, and then then the, that's where I think the obsession comes. You you know, confidence comes with something you're good at, doesn't it? So, did you play in bands all through your teenage years? Yes. Well, is it your school? You know, no, none of the girls looked at me at school, and then play at the school concert, and they all wanted to speak to me. So that's a I'm, I'm perpetuated that to this very day. <laughs> still, still can't believe it. Uh, and so, how would you describe your drumming style? It searches from lots of different places. Um, I don't know whether it's got a, a name or a description. It's very physical. Um, I, isn't it? You're a very physical drummer. 
Yeah, it, it's physical um, I, because I think in the early days I was playing in sort of clubs and you had to play quite loud. There was, there, you know, the PA systems are great these days. So I think I started off by having to move air. You know, you had to be there. You had to establish a presence. Um, and uh, that was one of the things. Uh, I, I, I just had, always had a natural ability to syncopate. And I don't know why. Uh, even though I still practice being able to do that, it's just something that fell into my uh, lap naturally. And I felt, I've, yeah. And I'm not a great fan of jazz music. A lot of it I don't understand. I, like, I, I did love some jazz sort of rock type stuff, but uh, some jazz music is not on, my, on the same page as me. But I, uh, the swing thing, I do like the idea of swing and how jazz musicians swing. Did you have drummers that you looked at and studied? Yes, very much. I think the very early days, it was Brian Bennett with The Shadows, and I because my dad had the albums. And you used to be able to put albums on at 16 RPM. And I used yeah. to put... And that's where a lot of my rudiments came from. Because Brian Bennett was a very, very a, a fit drummer. I didn't fancy him. I don't really like that. I mean, but he's, uh, he, he, well, I suppose he was quite good looking. Um, but he was very, uh, he's well practiced in, uh, in, in rudiments. And I think that sort of came from there. And then I went through all the normal drummers. Um, I, I mean, I came out of the uh, closet about 10 years ago in admitting that I like Phil Collins. Who 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 was? I don't I don't really like him as a singer, but I, he, as a drummer, he was amazing. He was he was uh, incredible. It's funny you should say Phil Collins because I remember the first time I met you, we went I went on the road with. I was, wear, the I was wearing a Phil Collins T-shirt. No, no, we were, the, we were in the Fluffers and we were going to a gig in Cardiff because I was doing the book, and I never I actually hadn't been introduced to you. And we signed in. Glenn was doing an interview at BBC Garden. <laughs> and you signed in the book as Phil Collins. I was like, no, you want a coincidence? <laughs> and then after someone said, oh, yeah. hello, Simon. I thought, well, that doesn't make yeah. sense. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, still doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's my secret, my secret thing. But, I, you know, you can say it nowadays. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a really not a Phil Collins fan. I, I you know, the, the impact he had on the world of music. Uh, but he, his drumming, um, from like uh, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway through a lot of the things he did. And Eno used to use him on, on, uh, on, on sessions. Um, and, uh, you know, you could really hear a track he's doing. And obviously he had great success. Um, and part of it was his drumming, I think. Um, Jimmy Miller was an influence, is that correct? Well, I got the chance to be work with him um, in a band called The Blessing, who were obsessed with the Rolling Stones. So they hired Jimmy to do an album in about 92 or 93. I mean, he told me one thing. He said that he, he would come in, OK, now we're going to do it again. Only do a drum fill, like a drum fill is when you do this flashy bit. He said, only do a drum fill if you fuck the beat up. Honestly. And I said, what do you mean? He said, we don't, we don't want drum fills on this. Just play the beat. Uh, if you go wrong, do a nice little drum fill, come back in. <laughs> and, I mean, and it's quite sort of quite good advice. So tell us about your, you know, your in your late eighties, you playing in bands like Shot and The Blessing. What what were those days like? Well, it was I, I was working as a musician, <clears throat> uh, but mainly doing weddings and uh, covers, 
every night of the week. I think looking back to the 80s, there was a massive music scene where you could really um, play most nights of the week and earn money. I remember it like that. And if you couldn't get a job in a band, you formed a band and then you'd, you'd become your own agent. So you could always be working. Um, I think London was, as I remember it, really buzzing. You was always, always able to work or do some time of drumming. Uh, but yeah, des- I was always desperate to move on to the next level. It, it didn't sort of happen to me for ages. I was going to say, yeah, I was going to ask you about um, whether you were in bands that were, at the time, were trying to get deals and what have you. You know, how did you have many sort of near misses with bands before you got yeah, to I was... in Vegas? <clears throat> Yeah, I did a lot. There were not near misses, but I just—I mean, I was, there was a there was a period of time when my hubris overtook my ability, um, and I I got, you know, I put myself in front of a few bands, and then got I wasn't good enough, so I had to really go back to the drawing board. One of the ones was not a massive band, but I remember getting the job with Little Angels, who were a rock band, who was at the time they were sort of massive, and uh, I kind of talked my way into that, but when it got down to it, I wasn't good enough. Mark Richardson is a good friend of mine. He he sort of left to join the cult, and I, I placed myself there, and um, and that was really upsetting for me, facing up to the fact that I needed to be a bit better, because I was always flashing quite good, but you know there were certain responsibilities. So I, I start I got a job cleaning a uh, studio so I could practice overnight. So did they say you weren't? Did you, were you told you weren't good enough? Or... No, they didn't tell me anything. But I mean, I got the message when I. Turn the TV on and somebody else was doing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> was it timekeeping? What was the issue? Uh, I, yeah, I just, I don't think I was, I think I was, yeah, I, did, I couldn't control the band. You know, I didn't have, I had all this sort of flashiness, but I didn't have actual deep skills, you know, sort of at that time, sort of rock and roll skills. Um, and, I, and I think I needed... You know, when a when a rock band's going, you've, there's a certain amount you've got to you've got to sort of take charge a little bit. Yeah, tell you know, me a bit about that because uh, I mean the uninitiated um, maybe don't realise how much that the rhythm section, the drum and the bass, are so important. It's like the skeleton on which everything else is built. Tell, tell me a bit about that. Live and on records that are re- representing live music, that is the, the a bass a rhythm section being in in tune with each other is 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 magic and and when it's when it's wrong it really isn't wrong and i'm not i'm really not talking about agility or abilities or technical stuff it's just that whether the the rhythm section are on the same page um and you can sort of hear instantly when it isn't and i i don't i can't even put my finger on what it is but when it's right you know it really is it is it is important it's not even them playing together it's them just knowing that they're playing together. After more than a decade on the fringes of the music industry, it was joining Death in Vegas in 1998 that paved the way for Simon to become one of the most well-respected drummers in the business. Someone like me so how did you how did you get into Death in Vegas? Death in Vegas was I was in a band called the Aloof who were signed to East West Records and we'd just done a, a, a an album and the engineer on that was a guy called Tim Holmes and he joined Death in Vegas. Uh, he was the house engineer at Orinoco, which is a studio. 
he got me to come down and do a few tracks on their second album because he joined on the second album. And, uh, do you know, uh, early on, it was really... Death in Vegas was like this Thursday night boys club that would meet up in EC1, do a few songs. I mean, they'd had a minor sort of hit, and I know that... And, but we used to just all meet up and make a bit of music, then have a pint. And then one day, it just it sort of exploded for some reason. And that, that was the most amazing feeling. I remember we, we'd gone to America, we played in Boston, and there was two people in this club in Boston. And then we, and we'd come back and done the, uh, we were the second headline on the other stage. It was just like, it was really two, two people to late Saturday night on outdoor stage at Glastonbury. And that was a lovely feeling. It's a lovely feeling when that happens to a band, really. And that was, I mean, you were, a, and I, you know, you were about 34 or so when you got into Vegas. Yes. Yeah. I, it was, yeah, it would be about that, yeah. So did you think that wasn't going to happen for you? Because that's relatively late, isn't it? No, I didn't ever think that. I think because it, I think my growing was so gradual. And I mean, I'd done a lot of the TV stuff and I'd sort of done a few sessions. So I didn't ever think it wasn't happening. I just thought that was the pace it happens at, really. I think it, in many ways, it was good it didn't go quickly. It was, it was a really slow learning process. Um, to, you know, to, and even to this day, I don't, you know, I don't know whether... I still think I'm part of that growing thing where I've not quite achieved the best that I can. I mean, I, I but think, it's been a steady, it's been all, all uh, your career is is getting bigger each year, you know, really. I mean, squids are getting it, it, almost as big yeah. as they were in the day. It, it's incredible. Badness is going on, what a feeling. Incredible. You know, I, and, uh, oh, I have no words, especially as we went into lockdown about three days later. <laughs> we, we all went from 25,000 people to no one. <laughs> I think that it's like like being a really good doctor. I think you're not great when you first start out. You have to learn how to be. And I think if you get loads of success, and in those early days, I'd be dead or something, wouldn't I? Or, or totally believing how brilliant I was, you know. <laughs> um, so it's good. I don't. I, I even felt it as slow. I just feel it as lucky. I mean, how much did Death in Vegas change your musical playing style? Because you know that electronic music. How. Because you were playing in quite heavy bands before that, weren't you? I was, well, I went through different phases. I was really technical for ages because I wanted to really get my head around technical drumming, you know, in uh, odd trousers <laughs> and time signatures. And then, um, then the rock and roll sort of thing happened in between that. And, I, and that, that in itself is harder than the technical stuff. You know, the thing was saying, like rock bands, some of the rock bands that I got invited to play on their albums and then went out on the road with them, I mean, was um, a, a really big eye opener. Uh, it's a very different world, the, the rock and roll world. <laughs> Did it sort of change your way? You, you kind of got into electronic music at that time? Or? I, it was around that time. I, I'd been I'd lucky enough to get a sponsorship deal with Yamaha, and at the time they had a lot of they had a lot of research and development money for different instruments. And I worked on a thing called the DTX, which is an electronic drum kit. And that that's one of those things where I was interested in it, but they sort of paid me to go to Japan and work out what what a drummer would like from an electronic drum kit. I did a lot of the sounds for the keyboards as well, a real world, it's me. They're all single hits, it's nothing, but um, I, I was quite proud of that. But that meant I was given a shitload of equipment, so I had the chance to work on samplers and things like that, and, um, 
And, and the other death in Vegas thing was, you know, they introduced me to a different way of thinking about, about music. I mean, they're, 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 the drumming in that is quite rock and roll, actually. And, but it opened, went, made me go into a different world. I remember going to a French nightclub and, uh, you know, getting off my head and then going, oh, I can now see why 5,000 girls in fluffy tops. Ah, oh, now I get it. And it simplified a lot of the things I was doing and made me understand that. And I, I really like dance music. Also, it, music's a bit like a policeman watching the bill. You, 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 if a policeman's watching a cop show, he's going to say, well, that's not the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, is it? And I think listening, listening to music <laughs> is, is a bit, I'm going to go, what's the drummer doing there? Oh, dear. Or, oh, wow, how did he do that? Or, and with dance music, it's, there's none of that. All that ego of, I know how to play that instrument's gone because it's something else. And when a piece of electronic music grabs you, it grabs me like I imagine it would you. So, uh, and you also did some interesting collaborations in Vegas. I mean, you collaborated with Iggy Pop, didn't you? Anglia yes, well, was, and, and the Iggy Pop was such a great... They sent him a cassette to his house and said, please sing on this, and, they, and he sent the cassette back. Oh, so you never, you never came to the studio? No, well, we did af- after that, yes. We did coincide in Paris uh, after, after that first one but the initial was we're a band from england we love you please could you this is our track and he sent this track back about a, a mass murderer and it was amazing and it was great it's just a lovely lovely thing that happened in space and time we're supposed to do top of the pops with the song aisha and we weren't allowed to because the week harold shipman was sentenced and they wouldn't have a Imagine my poor little disappointment. I was even more angry with Harold Shipman. <laughs> <laughs> Not that he was a mass murderer, but he kept me from going on top of the pops. <laughs> if only they waited a couple how of much, weeks to arrest him. I know. How much more anger can I have for Shipman? <laughs> so uh, I want to ask you about um, meeting Glenn Tilbrook. So when, when did you meet Glenn and, and how important was that for your life, really? I think musically the most, because I've... Uh, I've uh, done more things, I've learnt more, and I'm still learning. He's, uh, he's on a different planet when it comes to musicality. Um, and, uh, you know, to have stood in his shadow this long, I just, it's absolutely fantastic. I've learnt more. He's so open-minded about music, well, first thing. I think he taught me that. He evaluates music for the absolute... The raw. If he likes it, he likes it. If he doesn't, he doesn't. And it's it's amazing. And that's what I think. That's the main thing I've learned from him. He listens to, um, you know, he just evaluates for for the truth of music. Um, and he's so clever. Yeah. He's such a good. Yeah. When and how did you come across him? Well, uh, Glenn's partner uh, was the road manager for the band The Aloof. Ah. Okay. And so I, Suzanne and I had worked on quite a few tours, um, early 90s, mid 90s. And I, rem- I think I met Glenn. I don't know whether he remembers that. He sat on my monitor when I was doing Glastonbury with the Aloof. And I was like, oh, <laughs> cocky, yeah. I'm just sound checking. I'm doing Glastonbury out of the way. And I was going, fuck, it's Glenn. <laughs> but I hid it. I, d- I didn't let him. I went, yeah, hi, yeah. Hi, mate, yeah. But inside, I was like, Peddling away. That's funny. 
And and so tell me about those early days in the fluffers. It was it was just so much joy. So the working with Len, I went down and played on a couple of tracks on his first solo record uh, when he had a studio when he had the first studio in Blackheath, um, and and we sort of just got on, and it was great to play on that. Um, and then when uh, he had a band called The Party, uh, which was his first solo band, and we did a, a, a mini tour, and that was that was really really good fun sort of testing the water. And then the, the, when it came time to do... They did a second album, which, which a lot of the fluffers played on. And I think it's the third album, Pandemonium Sues, was the first fluffers album. Yeah, that's right. And that was... Oh, it was a glorious time, really. Because, it, again, Glenn was just so open. He said, please come and write. Write some songs. Send in your ideas... It was, you could really contribute to the recording. We recorded it over a two-week period, which, which to this day has got to be one of the greatest recording, you know, real old school, go in and do this record. It seemed to happen so quick, and it, I just remember laughing. We all laughed so much. And it's a great record. Seems I gave up happiness. Better still was to come. In 2007, after eight years apart, Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford decided to reform Squeeze, asking Simon to be the band's drummer. How did you find out that Glenn and Chris were getting back together with Squeeze? And uh, you know, at what point were you asked to be part of that? Um, I think uh, they'd been sort of talking about it, I think. This is going back a long time now. I think at first I'd, I'd, just, I'd really separated the fluffers and not... I didn't even consider that that might be a possibility, really. And then it sort of came on the cards and I was like, well, that, if it happens, it's great, because a lot of stars had to align. And when it did, I was over the moon. I mean, that's a super fan. I really am. I'm, I'm so happy to be in that band. And you know, I spent a long time on the road w with Glenn, so that w it was even nicer to you know to be in a band with somebody that you you, you know spent so much time with musically and not, and it's it's really good. And I'd Squeeze are a great band. Of course, yeah. Was it great that you also had Stephen joining at the same time? It was really brilliant because Stephen and I, I I met Stephen about the same time I met Glenn, um, and yes, it was good. He's another genius, though. Oh, absolutely. He's yeah. on a different... Yes. It's when, when they're doing... When they can listen... Both Glenn and he can listen to a piece of music and know what the notes are and, then, and can play them just by listening to it. I'm not, I don't know that many people that could do that. Well, but he's, he's, yeah. I mean, he's great to watch, as are you, actually. I mean, you, if you watch... Yeah, Squeeze... but I'm better. <laughs> but if you watch Squeeze, actually, I could spend... If I could... I would like to watch two shows in a row. One where I just concentrate on the gig, and the second watching individuals for, you know, three or four numbers at a go. Because I could watch you play, or just watch you, and I could watch Steve, and I could watch all of you yeah. individually. Because you're such an interesting band to watch. It's such a, so energetic, so much energy. Um, there's no shoe staring at all. It's a really vibrant act. Stephen, I think, shares that he's passionate about music. He's got that same weird obsession. There's, I don't think there's, I've ever done a gig with Stephen and Glenn where we just haven't 
hoped and tried to make it the best gig of our lives. And we've done some, we've done some, you know, we, we've done some weird gigs when, you know, there weren't many people there. And we've still, it's still like that, it's still the same. The same level of energy goes in as that. I think they just, they just, we all just love music. And when you came into the band, or even actually when you were doing squeeze songs, playing with Glenn earlier, did you put your own personality on it completely, or did you follow, you know, the drum parts of someone like Gilson, who of course was a fabulous drummer as well? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the drummer heritage in Squeeze is, is really good, and to follow all their shoes, uh, I am a massive Gilson fan, and I, you know, I do chat with him. And I bump into him, and he's really lovely. I, mean, I consider myself a distant friend of his, uh, very, very supportive um, of that. And you know, I, I copy his parts. There's, there's going to be my little bits on it, but you know, a lot of my, the things I learned as a drummer when I was, at, you know, at school and stuff was from him. You know, the, the way he'd approach it. So. He, I think he has had a massive influence on a lot of people. Ringo's got that sort of orchestral tom-tom bit, but he just had a... It was a, part, it was a musical part. It's almost like, you know, my love of dance music, it's almost like a secrets apart, some of, some of the things he would play. And I, I just, I adore... I, you know, he's a great, great drummer. And then Pete, Pete Thomas, who I'm an equally a, a bigger fan of, um, his, his tenure with Squeeze was great. Yeah. And I love... I was always a fan, I was more of a Gilson fan than Pete, but I think that was probably because of the Squeeze music versus Elvis's music. But uh, Pete Thomas is so good. He's very good. And, and a top fellow. There's a song by Squeeze called Melody Motel. Oh, great song. I love that song. It is, it is a great song. And there's a line in the song that goes, the footsteps of a young girl came tapping down the hall. And he came up to me after a gig once. He said, Melody Motel, there's a footsteps of a young girl come tapping down the hall. Do your job, drummer. <laughs> 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 I remember him whispering that in my ear. So if we ever play that and it goes, the footsteps of a young girl come tapping down the hall. That's my uh, instruction from Pete. <laughs> That's funny. So you've um, played with some three bass players, I think, in Squeeze. You've had John Bentley, of course, is in the original lineup. then you had Lucy Shaw and you've had Yolanda. Um, what are they all like? What do they all like to play with? How do they differ? They're all very, very different. They're all brilliant um, for different reasons. John, John's bass playing, I really, when I first got to play, it was lovely. He's quite an old school bass player. Very, very solid. He follows me. Um, and, you know, he's, he's, he's played on some of those old records. It's great. And, uh, it, and you know, and he's a lovely, lovely human being. And then when Lucy came along, Lucy's not a bass player; she's a double bass player. That's right. Yeah. Off some note, uh, so her approach to the electric guitar was great because it was not that of a bass player. Um, so she's quite rock and roll. She's sort of simplistic, and yeah. she she brought this amazing, this this amazing uh, edge to, to the fluffers and to squeeze. It's just because just Lucy plays like she plays. Uh, Yo, when Yo came along, she just opened a brand new door of possibility, you know, even to me. Uh, and, you know, going back um, to those days when I, you know, she, her, her level of musicianship, I think she pushed everybody in squeeze. I think she came on with a new, new approach and uh, a, a new 
area of possibilities, and uh, she's a great, funky player. Yeah. She's all about sound. She's all about what the sound, not necessarily the notes, but what the sound is, I think. That's, that's how I would describe her. She's, she's, she needs the sound of the bass. The job it's doing is more important than the notes. Although that girl can play those notes. She played so fast one day, we all went back in time. <laughs> it, was like, it was like about a century. Then we got back, yeah. And so what was it like to, because you had the sort of first five or six years in Squeeze where you were pretty much playing the original songs and then you made a couple of albums quite quickly. And um, what was it like yes. making those? It must have been exciting being part of that, the Squeeze, those first two yeah. albums. Yeah, it was. We'd done, a solo, we'd done a solo. We'd done a live album before and we'd done, I think, like a couple of tracks recording. We also did the re-album, you did the re-recorded the original yes hits. yeah spot the difference yeah yeah spot that spot the difference was that was a great uh, uh, it was pr produced by glenn and a guy called andy jones uh, it was really good to go deep inside of you know gilson's playing and you know and how how they put those records together it was lovely to study that and i think it's a great i actually like that record there's some i can't tell it would be like it would you know, spot the difference. It would take me a while to, to know. Um, we were really quite faithful, definitely faithful to the sound of the drums and to the parts. Because um, like things like um, Black Coffee in Bed is clearly edited. In the old days used to cut the tape to edit because the solo is a slightly different speed to the rest of it. And it's clearly they've taken a, one of the takes and, and put it in the middle. And uh, it, was, it was, you know, I hadn't noticed from listening to it, but you can when when you when you're on a computer screen, you're going right. We've got to do this, and there's some very funny. I think there's some funny edits in the drum the, on Call for Cats. Ah. Um, it's not intuitive. It's it seems to turn it turn itself around um, on the on the record, things like so. It's good to do that. It's good to study them. And what was it like doing Cradle to the Grave? That it was great. It was a lovely. It was new music coming out is like the lifeblood to any band, I think. Yes. I remember Radiohead at Coachella saying, we have to do new songs, sorry, otherwise we'd die. And, it, and it's totally true. I mean, what's it been in, being in the room when you're making the first music with Glad and Chris? I mean, that's just an honour. Just an honour to watch, watch them in action. And, uh, and not only to play on it. And it's, they're both, the last two records are so good. Well, that's it, actually. I remember when I got the first, I mean, I'd heard occasional songs like but I remember getting the album and thinking oh, I hope this is going to be good um, this, yeah. you know, because you do have record people come back with bloody awful records and yes. yeah, they were phenomenal both of them are as good as anything that were produced first time right? yeah it the, have, that, mean, how important was that to the band that they were they were that good really I think I think that that's maybe why the the hiatus period was there because yeah. it's a very scare it's a very scary thing, and you know it the, the the thing that I mean the way Glenn writes is he writes something which I th would probably think is quite complicated musically, but makes it sound simple, and somehow those melodies just go straight inside you. You know he is a melody smith, and it's yeah, not it yeah. is it, yeah it is is there's lots of chords I'm told. I'm a drummer, who cares? Whoa. 
So how much input did the rest of the band have in those recordings? We didn't write the music because I think that was something that they really had to do themselves. Yeah. But I, th I feel that, you know, my memory of it was that any suggestion was taken up. In fact, I, it was. I know there's loads of uh, opportunity where we go, what about this? And if it was crap, we wouldn't do it. But if it was good, it would, it would sort of stay. I, yes. My memory was an open forum. I don't think any of the, the stress a band might have doing new music after so far didn't come into the studio by that stage. And what would you say you bring to Squeeze, apart from your drumming? I think the music really suits me as a, as a musician. I think there's a comfortable slot there. I think it's really important the time I spent with Glenn on the road, and I did some tours, just him and me. I tried to be able to feel the way the band is going in that moment. I hope I do. I do get it wrong. I'm the best looking. That's probably what I bring to them. <laughs> what about your personality? Because you have a very comedic personality. And I, I can remember all those years ago being on the the road of the fluffers and it was like a um, hundred mile an hour jokes that's what i bring to the band i am yes i think a lot of drummers are like that and it's a lovely forum to to be able to have a laugh really and yeah i like it's it's we do we just make fun it's it's just such fun being a musician it doesn't it shouldn't really be serious should it i mean the music's serious but that's take that's that's taken as red the rest of it is being on the road, it's a bit, it's, it's a bit coping mechanism. As, as exciting as it is for a twenty-year-old, when it does, it can be work. You know, when you're a long way from home, especially in America, there's lots of long journeys. I was that moves me on to actually what I was going to ask you next, which is about um, you made that great solo album that was on your iPad, and and one of the songs is about a long journey in Scotland. It is with Glenn. It, it, the, 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 are you talking about the song A9 South? I certainly am. Yeah, so that, and then I just wrote down all the things I saw on that journey. Have you ever done that journey? No. Let's no. do it. I'd love to make a film that, like, I'd like to make a video of going up and down there and talking to people about the little different places. Strange names. The most amazingly uh, energetic road. A9 South was one of 13 tracks on Simon's experimental album, Songs from the Silver Box. The songs are an eclectic mix, and he's currently planning a follow-up record. Um, so what, did you, what made you come up with the idea of, of making the album on your iPad? Well, I didn't think you needed an iPad. I thought it was something that was completely superfluous. Sur sur What's that word? You're a journalist. Superfluous. You're a writer. Superfluous. Specific. Pacific. <laughs> um, a really, really, really lovely friend of mine called Bill Sauer in oh, um, yes, America. Oh, yeah. yes. Yes. Uh, he gave me an iPad. And I was like, thanks. What is it? You know, is that a little tray? And um, that, then I think iPads were the, the, the biggest thing lately for musicians because... It's such a good resource. You can play any instrument on it. It's the third-party apps, I mean, you can make any sound. And it opened up, 
you know, you can play the piano where you set it to a key and you can't play a wrong note. It turns me into Stephen and the guitar and things like that. So for writing, it's like, okay, I'll open this up. And I know a lot of really interesting songs are made from wrong notes, but you, you can play wrong notes on them as well. And I just think it opened up this new world of instruments. It's such a good idea, isn't it? And how long did that take you then? It took me about, it was, it was a couple of years really, and I didn't, yeah, it was, it, was, it was knocking around for a couple of years, then I just sort of had the confidence to just put it out. Um, and it was all done on iPad, a lot of it was done on the road. And it's sort of fun, it's really, I mean, I make little films as well, like, I think my music's a hobby, and I think my filmmaker's a hobby, and, my, and my, I think my drumming is, you know, it's what I do, I'm lucky enough to do for a living, um, but those two things on the side... Also, as you get a bit older, you don't party quite so much on the road, so it's good to have another occupation. Uh, what would you say are your um, favourite songs on that you wrote for that album? On that record, uh, there's a song there's called a few personal Shoes. Ones, aren't there? there are some personal ones. Um, I've, uh, somebody said to me the other day, "It's a really sad record, isn't it?" And it was it was during the time when I, I was sort of going through a breakup, but I don't think it was like a breakup record. There's some interesting things. It's weird when you write. It's how it comes out isn't always what what you uh, what you're meaning. There's a song called Shoes which I really like because it seems to be not drawn from anything else. And A Known South is not. It seems to have come from a really good place. And it's about James Dean, but it, it's not about. It's about. Um, I was in a studio in Wolverhampton, the one where they had the paint thrown all over it by the Stone Roses, and uh, he he had a copy of James Dean's speeding ticket that he got five minutes before he died, and it was like, that's fucking morbid. Whoa. Isn't it? He, he got nicked just before he died by a traffic cop. And this guy had the speeding ticket. Where did he get and that? I don't eBay, know. Probably on eBay or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I do I don't understand why you would love James Dean, but that I found a little bit weird. Why shoes? Where does the... Why, why shoes? That was just one line from it which ended up being the title. I love doing that. It was a great opportunity to go and, um, and push yourself. In fact, Glenn was like, because Glenn did a solo record and I did some singing on it and he, he pushed me sort of to the front and said, you should do this, you should do this. And that was great. Yeah, he's very generous like that, isn't he? Yes. He, he's never... For somebody of his abilities, he's amazingly open to that sort of thing, really. And could suffer like a, you know, an absolute novice songwriter like me who barely knows what the chord F is to go no you can do that or that's good or that isn't and yeah he pushed me to sing I sang on a few on his on of his solo tours I went and did a lead vocal which is which is great out your comfort zone is where you learn most yeah yeah I don't know how singers do it though that's a lot that's a heavy weight to take out yeah. I mean, me as a drummer, I'm behind this playpen, which I've been sat behind since I was nine. You know, a more sub familiar surroundings, you could not. Everything's always just been there in front of me. So every gig I go to, however nerve-wracking, I've got a drum kit in front of me and I know, I know it's going to work. But to be, you know, to be the leader of a band, that's... Uh, that's yeah. good. That's that's a lot of work. I mean, absolutely. Having only ever sung a couple of songs in front of an audience, uh, it's a lot of weight to take on. I tell you what must be hard actually is it must be hard for Glenn because Chris certainly in, on some of the early records used to write a lot of lyrics for songs. It's a lot of lyrics to remember. I don't know. He does it. I mean, I, I, yeah, my experience is doing a couple of songs as lead singer, and I had to I had to have 
I don't know, massive cue cards in my head. Um, and some of them has got to be, is must remember them. Yeah, I imagine it's quite hard when you do a new record and um, you have, they're not gone deep down into your psyche, really. Yeah. And what about, uh, I mean, Squeeze have, I seem to be getting, before lockdown, seem to actually, as I mentioned earlier, to be getting bigger and bigger. How has that happened? Why do you think that's happened? Because the music industry is in decline. I think there's, there's two. I think it is a bit in decline. I think obviously there's a period of time when people come back to music they loved, and I think that Squeeze when, uh, are not bolted onto a specific period of history in time. They are bolted onto great music over quite a few decades. Yes. And the fact that they they want, I mean, the band now is a seven piece with a, a genius percussionist, and a, a, and as pedal steel, it is not the Squeeze from the old days. It, no. you, it is not a tribute to itself. And and with you know when Yo was playing, it was really funky, and it was still the songs, but there was a brand new energy. There was a great review of the Madison Square Gardens gig somewhere where they just all the guy said was, "This is not a, 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 an old version of Squeeze or whatever. This is not a, a pastiche of itself in the past. This is something new. Go and see it." And also, Squeeze spend a lot of money on production. I mean, you get you don't you don't just get a, a band doing twenty songs. You, you know, they 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 spend a lot of time and um, energy on making it look good. So it is it is a performance, and I think that makes people want to come back and see you. Yes. Yeah. And what are, what does uh, what does Melvin and Steve add to the mix? Um, Melvin is, is another person. He's he's beyond. He's so musical and lovely, um, and he's he's very funny man. He's just brought a different corner edge. Uh, he plays the guitar and the pedal just so beautifully. It just it's a, it's a lovely sound. And Steve Smith, um, who's has his own band called Dirty Vegas, not Death in Vegas, because of course Dirty Vegas stole Death in Vegas' name but changed it slightly. <laughs> he he deny that. But there we go. Let's get it out of there. But we did it at the same time. It's lucky. Yeah. I think we should do, we should do a solo project called Dirty Death. But I don't know. That was, just, that, that was actually Steve Smith's idea as a joke. Um, and he, can, he obviously, he's a lead singer. Uh, percussion, me, having a percussion is great. It's like, it's like a really posh. It's like, wow. Because you know, I'm, I'm more of a sort of backbeat player, so it's great. You, I sit back and I'm, doing the, I'm happy doing the two and four beat while well, he could he could do the bongo herbert as i call him and he's really good i mean i know he's from a dance band and i know he like, like some of the music you associate with him is sort of dance music but that boy can play them bongos or anything <laughs> i love it i can watch it's always easy to wind the percussionist up there's a there's a have you heard about the percussionist weather forecast go on there's a 90 chance of rain stick <laughs> which is a it's a percussion instrument that you you turn upside down yeah it's like yeah they always get it out eventually <laughs> oh, um so i'm just going to end up with asking you coming back to the pandemic how is it going to change the music industry i mean we there's no sign of going to gigs yet no it's i, I oh i don't know i mean i didn't know what the music industry was doing before the only thing I would, would used to think about was it was like back to the 50s when you went out, you played a gig and you opened the boot of your car and you sold records. 
And that's, that's what we've been doing, you know, and now that's just stopped. So it, need, it needs to be ingenious, and I don't know what that'll be yet. I mean, I, I, it'll come round. I feel that, we, we, you know, musical, musically it'll be a delay of a year before people have the confidence to go out again. Um, I mean, again, it's like, I, I think it's fine for the, us in bands, because I can practice, watch movies and think about music. What about the guys who live off, you know, theater, running theatres and, and our crew guys? There's no, I mean, within music as well, we get a little bit of residual payment for things we might have done in the, you know, before. It's a little bit of money comes in. But some guys who have to work and they've just stopped. I, mean, we can't, I can't retrain at 50. Asda, Asda might have me. <laughs> <laughs> Could always work at Asda. Oh, well, I think that's covered pretty much everything, Simon. That was fantastic. You were as good as I thought you would be. It's brilliant to chat with you and thank you for inviting me. Um, and um, I, let, I, we, we, as soon as we can, let's go and see a band together and have a beer. I can't talk to you no more And you can't talk to me We've walked every avenue Of diplomacy is Can't Talk To You from Songs From The Silver Box. Thanks so much to Simon for being on the show. Thanks also to Mark Taplin and Helen Breeden. Until next time, goodbye.